So there have been some developments with respect to some cases going on in the United Methodist Church, and uh, I've already reported on a number of them. I thought it'd be good to do some follow-ups for those who are interested. The reason it matters is because the judicial system in any given body is the um, sort of protector of the, the rules and regulations. Of course, the executive is responsible for enforcing the rules, but whenever those rules need to be determined or someone breaks those rules, the judiciary is, uh, whether you're talking about the state or the United Methodist Church, it's the body responsible for maintaining the rules, uh, deciding the rules. And for a long time, there have been different legal battles in the United Methodist Church that have kind of put on trial the Book of Discipline and whether or not it can be defended uh, by the body. So it's kind of testing the antibodies of uh, the immune system of the United Methodist Church. And so I wanted to start off doing a little bit of history for you, and of course there are probably people much more qualified to do this than me, uh, but if you would uh, take a walk down memory lane with me, I graduated seminary uh, from Boston University School of Theology in summer of 2011, and at that time, this case was going on. This was Amy DeLong, who was an activist in the denomination at that time who had performed a gay wedding ceremony. I watched um, with some interest but also some disgust as the United Methodist Church failed to exercise its um, self-defense mechanisms against a hostile ideology that was firmly already taking root in the United Methodist Church. Um, and so I wanted to provide some of this history on Amy DeLong, and it ties into some history that comes before, and then we're going to look at current cases that have been resolved and other cases that haven't been resolved, just kind of tying together a number of threads that I've been weaving together over the last few months. So um, I, if I'm not lazy, whenever I post this, I will provide links to the other pieces that I've done so that you can do whatever research you're interested in. Of course, the reason that this is pertinent is because there are many institutional leaders within the denomination who want to make the case that the denomination can and will defend itself, will uphold the Book of Discipline, um, and I'm going to provide arguments for both sides of that story, not because I just love making a complicated picture, but because some pictures actually are complicated. Um, in case you, you need my, my boiled down version so you can just move on to the next uh, video or segment, I, I do believe that the United Methodist Church has no interest in uh, broadly defending the Book of Discipline whenever it stands against um, held values by liberal elites in North American Anglo communities. So I think there will be exceptions to that. However, I don't think those exceptions break the rule. So um, let me, if you don't know the story of Amy DeLong, apparently the Wisconsin Annual Conference had come out already by this point as uh, an affirming, reconciling annual conference. They made clear where they wanted to be on the culture war. Amy DeLong was a clergy. Um, here, this is Time Magazine reported on it, and this is 2011. Um, as I said, I was a, a young United Methodist pastor in Idaho when this happened. The Reverend Amy DeLong, a Methodist pastor from Osceola, Wisconsin, I probably butchered that name, decided to come clean. She brought to the attention of her local bishop that she had officiated over the same-sex union of a lesbian couple. It is a rite prohibited by her religion, and having performed it, DeLong could be put on trial by the church. She also told the bishop she might as well be prosecuted for something else. She is in a lesbian partnership. 
And so last week, DeLong, 44 years old, faced a jury of church elders in Kakana, Wisconsin, at issue was whether she violated the Book of Discipline, which guides the church's teachings by blessing the same-sex union and for being a, quote, self-avowed practicing homosexual, end quote. The 13-member jury acquitted her on the second charge, but it also found her guilty of the first. But that's where something historic happened. The elders handed down the first sentence in 20 years of the United Methodist jurisprudence that did not indefinitely suspend or defrock an elder for officiating a same-sex union. This is Time Magazine. Their their uh, main beat is not the United Methodist Church. I'm not sure how much of what was said there was actually accurate, and the reason I'm calling that into question is, is because of stuff uh, that we're going to look at in another article in a moment. But um, as it said here, DeLong got pretty much a slap on the wrist. Um, if we look back at the article, instead DeLong's sentence is a 20-day suspension that also calls on her to draft a document that will outline procedures for the Methodist clergy to resolve issues that, quote, harm the clergy covenant, create an adversarial spirit, or lead to future clergy trials, end quote. She is pleased with the ruling. Quote, they certainly had every opportunity to be punitive and throw the book at me, she says. My hope is that this is the very last time that somebody is put on trial for acts of conscience, most people hope to be first. I hope this to be the last. Dealing with matters of conscience in a punitive, legalistic way doesn't serve anybody well. And then it gives a, a large, larger picture of what was going on in 2011, which was 12 years ago so far as public sentiment towards uh, LGBTQ lifestyle, sexual ethics, um, all that that was coming to a head at that point. Uh, the most startling part of the sentence, DeLong says, is that she has kept her clergy credentials. It has commentary from Rob Renfro here, who of course is the head of Good News Magazine, and then it, it kind of wraps up down here. Wanted to look at the official UM News article, Details of Penalty for Reverend Amy DeLong. After more than six hours of deliberations, a jury of 13 UM clergy voted 9-4 to four to suspend the Reverend Amy DeLong for 20 days beginning July 1st. In case you need a reminder, uh, church trials cost a hundred grand. Um, this one easily went beyond. I'm I'm sure it was a long, prolonged process. Getting this many people together, going through all these hoops, is an expensive process. And in the end, what it resulted in, even though there was clear violation of the rules, um, there was the the gay uh, union ceremony. But there's also her being a self-avowed practicing homosexual. They actually questioned her as to her sexual conduct with her uh, partner at the time. I don't know if they're still together. I, I, I tried to look up Ms. DeLong on uh, the internet. She seems to have not done anything publicly since 2013. Um, but she, uh, I remember there being a quote where they asked her if she was a self-avowed practicing homosexual, and she kind of uh, proudly said, well, uh, I'd like to think I'm more than practicing. I'm pretty good at it. That's the way I remember it. But whenever they started questioning if they have had genital contact with one another, they just said, that's, that's private business. You shouldn't be asking me that. So the jury said that they couldn't convict on that testimony. Uh, the suspension, the jury wrote, is to be used for spiritual discernment and preparation for a process seeking to restore the broken clergy covenant relationship. The process is to include, um, here's the formal language, 
An open and collaborative communication which shall include the Reverend Amy DeLong, Wisconsin Area Bishop Linda Lee, and Reverend George Mayorga Solis, DeLong's District Superintendent, the Reverend Richard Strait, <clears throat> and a Wisconsin United Methodist Elder of DeLong's choosing. Um, it's not clear to me. I, I don't have any memory. It, it seems to me that she came and brought herself to the conference asking for them uh, pretty much to file charges against her. I don't know the particulars of if it was the bishop or one of the DSs that filed charges. However, since they were a reconciling conference, it stands to reason that um, this was a friendly process. And so um, it was not necessarily an adversarial thing. This is what we're going to come to with the Drew Enns case here in a minute. But um, as it was, the people that were a part of creating this resolution all seemed to be on the same side. So it was something that was done to advance United Methodist jurisprudence in the direction of being more tolerant of breaking the Book of Discipline in this way. DeLong will initiate a written document outlining procedures for clergy in order to help resolve issues that harm the clergy covenant, create an adversarial spirit, or lead to future clergy trials. The document shall be informed by the Bible, the 2008 Book of Discipline, Judicial Council rulings, and other relevant materials. DeLong will write the first draft in collaboration with the persons named above and will present that draft to the Conference Board of Ordained Ministry by January 1st. After review and edit by DeLong and the people named in the first point, the final document will be completed in time to be distributed to the clergy of the Wisconsin Conference before 2012 annual conference gathering to be acted on in 2012 clergy session. Now, I tried to find this document, and my web searching skills this morning are not up to par. But as I recall, I remember reading a synopsis of this document. It was nothing confessing wrongdoing or asking um, for forgiveness or uh, nothing penitent in tone. It was rather something, uh, a document that was railing against the religious right and how they are um, uh, harming sexual minority communities and how they need to repent. This is similar to the ministry of Miss Pentecost, who of course is the United Methodist most famous uh, transvestite cross-dressing, um, what do they call them? These, uh, these performers that, that drag show, drag, drag queen is what Miss Pentecost is. Uh, he makes the case that uh, he's, uh, I don't think he's trans, uh, the, the actual guy, but in this capacity, he's uh, uh, ministering to the LGBT community, apologizing for the stance of the United Methodist Church. So there are activists who, uh, they use language of playing ball and honoring the Book of Discipline while simultaneously upending it apologizing for it, uh, trying to work against it, not just within the confines of the UMC, but very publicly uh, kind of disowning all the generations of Methodists that came before. Now, when we're looking at the historical piece here, when, when this declaration was made with uh, Amy DeLong, there was a woman named Karen Booth who was the head of uh, Transforming Congregations. She wrote a piece um, apparently in 2004, uh, this is this is some of the history, but uh, she says, I wrote a column for the United Methodist Reporter entitled, What I Would Say to Karen DeMann. A church trial court had just acquitted her of being a self-avowed practicing homosexual, and someone had asked me what I would say if given the opportunity to talk with her. First, um, well, okay, that, that part doesn't matter so much. Um, she says, I was pretty naive back then. I'd been serving as the executive director of transforming congregations for less than a year, 
and I had not observed our pro-gay activists in action. So I didn't hear of transforming congregations until last week. I'm going to be uh, interviewing the, the their current uh, leader. Let's see, Gary Ingram is his name. This is their YouTube page if you want to check them out. And they talk about sexual sin broadly, and they have a lot of people who came out of homosexuality and um, have testimonials to share. So as you see, I've started on Gary Ingram's as well, but apparently Transforming Congregations has been around for a while. I'm, I'm eager to learn more about them. Um, so uh, Karen Booth, who was the head in 2011, whenever the DeLong case was decided, she said, uh, I had not experienced their in-your-face witness at two contentious general conferences or struggled to make sense of their non-biblical reasoning during legislative sessions. I had uh, not observed their media manipulation of the Beth Stroud trial and appeals or mourned over the mistreatment of the Ed Johnson, of Reverend Ed Johnson because he had taken a stand for truth. I did not know how well they fit the description given to them on the Soul Force website, quote, relentless. Unfortunately, I'm much more cynical now. And then she does um, uh, a, a breakdown of, of the case, and I've probably spent enough time on that. But I wanted to convey that there's a long history of activism here. What's going on right now has a long history of wasting probably millions of dollars in unnecessary court cases and procedures that really should have been quite easily decided, probably didn't require a, a jury of peers. I've gotten a lot of pushback as I've covered judicial cases saying that there should be much more uh, summary sentencing behind closed doors. This does not need to be a big public thing. I think it works to the benefit of activists and people who hate the United Methodist Church, who have entered in, who've lied under oath as to what kind of clergy they've said they're going to be and if they're going to defend the Book of Discipline. I, I think this only benefits one direction, and it works against the institution. Well, I think what we have seen is a hostile takeover of an institution that was initially formed by people that um, I, I think Amy DeLong and others would characterize as biblical fundamentalists. Um, even so, they've co-opted the institution, and one of the main ways that they've done this <clears throat> is by compromising our uh, judicial branch. So uh, let's, let's turn now away from history and to the current situation. Uh, you may or may not remember, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Drew Enns, who uh, was clergy, here he is. Um, yeah, that's him on the right here. This is his public page. He has a private page. We're friends on Facebook. I still want to be friends with Drew. He was very nice to me in the interview that I did with him. I, I hope he feels the same way about me, even though we stand on uh, polar opposite sides of this. But Drew put out a statement. Uh, if, if you didn't watch that reporting that I did, Drew performed a gay wedding ceremony in his capacity as a United Methodist clergy. He was at the head of a campus ministry where two former students came to him and asked for him to perform the ceremony. He um, uh, uh, had a friend that he acknowledges in here filed charges against him for this infraction. The bishop at the time knew the strategy here was to enter into the just resolution process with a partner that was uh, amenable, and so she uh, personally filed charges against him and had a DS get involved. There was a lot of movement that I didn't understand, but eventually she did not see the just resolution process through. She just left him hanging. It ended up being over 1,300 days that he uh, did not have uh, his day in court. 
So anyway, uh, that bishop at the time, Sharma Lewis, moved on, and we're going to cover <laughs> another court case that she was involved in after Drew. But with this one, uh, he got a, a new bishop who is much more friendly to the left. I'm not very impressed with her uh, performance and her theology, and it's been pretty clear that she was going to make sure this this resolved in a, a good way, and in, indeed she did. So um, this is Drew's... Well, we'll start with the actual statement of the um, <clears throat> Just Resolution. They put out a joint statement on Just Resolution. Um, <clears throat> this was on June 8th. A Just Resolution was reached in the complaint pending Reverend Andrew Stanton ends, and an agreement was signed by all parties on June 5th, 2023. The complaint against Reverend Enns was made after he performed the same it says gender, it should say sex, although, yeah, they're the same thing uh, in my mind. Uh, but when people, just in case you don't know, when people talk about gender, they are generally talking about like some kind of internal understanding of one's sexuality, sexual identity that is not at all uh, matched with one's biological sex. It's one of the ways in which language is breaking down in this conversation. It's very frustrating. But anyway, they call it a same-gender wedding here. On September 21st, 2019, a ministerial act prohibited by the Book of Discipline, paragraph 341. Parties to this process were the Reverend Clark Cundiff, Church Council, representative of the Virginia Annual Conference of the UMC, complainant Reverend Anda Miller-Garber, that was his friend, respondent Reverend Enns, and counsel for the respondent Reverend Lauren Lobenhofer. All parties are grateful to have reached a resolution, especially as Reverend Enns remained under complaint for more than 1,300 days. Together as a conference, they hope there can be a refocus on the church's public witness to those seeking God's grace and love and on serving others. The clergy session of the 2023 Virginia Annual Conference will receive a report about the process pursued in the complaint and its cost to the annual conference. Um, so let's look at what he said about this. It's lengthier. I don't know that I'll read the whole thing, but this is his personal statement. I am so thankful for this day and have been longing for it for 1,354 days. I want to thank my spouse, Katie, and my four children who have been deeply impacted by the complaint process. So once again, there's, there's code involved here. Anytime you find... So uh, he is in a heterosexual marriage, but whenever you find people that refer to their female spouse... Uh, as spouse rather than wife, that's an indicator of sympathy with uh, kind of um, trans uh, gender critical theolo uh, theology theory, where um, people the sex is is completely irrelevant. They're interchangeable, and so you just have spouse one and spouse two. Uh, sex doesn't come into it at all. So even as he's making this public statement that is for the whole church, it is uh, from a certain ideological perspective that is hostile. Uh, to mine, <clears throat> and maybe yours. On this day, I want to apologize to our LGBTQ plus siblings, and especially to the couple whose day of celebration has been used by some as a political tool to do harm. I imagine that today, that today rings hollow as our UN polity still allows harm to be done, and we live in a nation that has increased policies and laws that put our LGBTQ siblings at risk. I know that the majority of clergy and leaders in the Virginia UMC support full inclusion, and I recommit myself to my baptismal vows to, quote, resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they may present themselves. If you need anything, please do not hesitate to let me know. Now, if you'll recall, 
uh, I already highlighted this historical pattern of people, activists, using the system to then gain a larger platform to kind of stick their thumb in the eye of conservatives and say, I'm going to publicly apologize, not for myself, but for you. And that's what he does here. Um, but he also um, talks about renewing his baptismal vows to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. This is a man who also, and I asked him directly about this in our interview, he, he took vows uh, to support the Book of Ordain, uh, Book of Discipline, United Methodist Book of Discipline, as it was written. And I asked him about that, and he said, well, I took those vows with the understanding that it was going to change soon, which I didn't find to be a, a satisfactory answer. Many of you also took issue with it, but um, I don't know if anything else needs to be said about that right now. Um, to my friendly complainant, Amanda Miller-Garber, for some reason, he was reluctant to acknowledge that she was friendly or that that had any uh, impact on his trial or just resolution. I don't see how it could have possibly not been relevant. It just seemed kind of, uh, yeah, I, despite all the talking he and I did, we did not reach a common place where that is not a very relevant fact here. Uh, you were the confirmation that God was calling me to officiate this wedding as a pastoral act. Your life experience and yours and John's witness earlier to me saying, yes, you experienced a punitive retaliation for officiating our mutual friend's wedding and stepped back into this process to ensure, oh yes, I remember she was an activist as well, and she uh, felt that she had been damaged by this, so she was, uh, as an act of pity, going to be the complainant against Drew so that it would be less adversarial and harmful. Um, if you want to look at this um, statement more, I'll, I'll put the link to his public case website so you can read that statement. I did follow up with him in email asking for the language of the just resolution because that matters in my opinion. And he said, um, as a part of the just resolution, I have some time I'm taking away from ministry. The conference shared a report with regards to the cost of this trial to the annual conference, which will be coming out in the days ahead of us. A public statement was made, and finally there has to be ongoing pastoral care by the conference for the campus ministry I'm leading. Realizing that no one is ever happy with these resolutions, the specifics are not being shared, but thank you for reaching out. So um, they're not sharing the language of the just resolution. We're not aware of anything that Reverend Enns is or is not confessing or repenting for. Um, I don't know Drew's innermost heart. However, I, I spent a good deal of time establishing how it is that he thinks through these things, and I, I am not at all optimistic that he offered any kind of conciliatory language towards people who hold uh, my theology. Of course, that doesn't matter to me as much anymore because I have exited, disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church. But even so, as you are in the United Methodist Church, just know that the Virginia Annual Conference uh, should be considered a, a conference in a state of rebellion against the the, the Book of Discipline. And if you're conservative, uh, they're not interested in honoring uh, what you're about, what you believe. Now, um, there's one other case that I've reported on that we saw movement on. You may or may not remember, this was a, an article by Religion News. Uh, UMC clergy reportedly faced complaint, church trial after marrying a non-binary couple. These are Reverends Paige Swain Presley and Elizabeth Davidson. Um, they had a formal complaint filed against them for officiating a same-sex wedding. These two are ostensibly 
uh, two females that got married together. However, they identified as non-binary. So they issued this public statement that I thought was kind of disingenuous, saying, well, there aren't any rules against non-binary weddings, um, which just uh, infers a certain assumed gender ideology that, um, that they, they believe everybody else should fit into. So at that time, uh, their bishop, Sharma Lewis, who was the former bishop at Virginia Annual Conference, who had um, gone against true ends, she filed charges against these two female activist clergy, and um, they decried publicly how Bishop, um, um, I just said her name and it's escaping me, how she kind of bullied them and did not uh, participate in the norms around some of this uh, juridical stuff. And I was really pessimistic about there being any kind of just resolution, and I was wrong. So I would direct you to this this uh, formal document from the Mississippi Conference of the United Methodist Church. This is where Bishop Sharma Lewis um, is the bishop. Um, by the way, I've reached out to her directly. I have not had success with any United Methodist bishops being willing to talk to me about anything. It seems to me that Bishop Lewis would be sympathetic to me and uh, the, the theological ideology that I represent, but she you know, did not get back to me at all. So it's not for lack of trying that all I've got is documents to work with. But if anybody knows Bishop Lewis, I would love to interview her, so uh, connect us if you would. All right, so this is the from, from her office. As was shared—I don't know if it's from her—well, it's from the conference. As was shared in the Clarion Ledger and other media outlets on January 7th, two clergy persons— Okay, so that, that lays out the whole thing. Today we share that a just resolution has been reached and that Reverends Davidson and Swain Presley— are on vol involuntary leave for a period of 18 months and 12 months, respectively, during which they shall not perform the duties of a deacon or elder as outlined in paragraphs 329 and 340 of the Book of Discipline. So this is, this is an actual punishment. This is not a slap on the wrist that Amy DeLong got. This is not an attaboy that Drew Enns got. This is an actual punishment, it seems to me. Um, below is a letter from both clergy to the Mississippi Annual Conference. It is our sincere hope that healing can begin for all parties. Out of respect for the confidentiality of the process, no further comment or information will be provided. Um, here's the actual statement, and you see their, their uh, signatures at the bottom. Quote, We acknowledge that the Book of Discipline defines marriages as between one man and one woman, and that our officiating a service of marriage between two non-binary persons violates that standard. We recognize that many of the clergy and laity in the Mississippi Annual Conference experienced harm as a result of our decision. We grieve deeply with them, the pain they have felt, and offer them our prayers and love, and both signed. Which is kind of a victory. Uh, the question is, is it a Pyrrhic victory? If you don't know that term, that's when you win, but you still lose, because so much has been expended, so much ground has been lost, that really it's, it's beyond... Uh, the point of, of claiming the overall, you win the battle, but you lose the war. I think that's a, a much more common saying. So this, you know, it seems to me that Bishop Sharma Lewis has integrity in defending the Book of Discipline, even if she didn't um, execute the, the just resolution process perfectly in either of the contexts in which she pressed charges against um, rebel clergy, activist clergy. I'm I'm, there is a sense of catharsis here in um, hostile entities actually having the hammer brought down on them. It is frustrating that the denomination still is going to make a place 
for people who have shown their contempt for the Book of Discipline and for generations of those who came before. But even so, if you're wanting to make the case that there is no place in the United Methodist Church that protects the Book of Discipline, I, I don't think you can make that case. I think it's clear that in Mississippi, under Bishop Lewis's leadership, they are interested in protecting the Book of Discipline. I think if I were United Methodist clergy in Mississippi, I would find it much more difficult to justify pursuing disaffiliation whenever it seems that uh, we have a bishop, you have a bishop willing to go to bat for you. Um, but even so, this is just one exception to a general rule of judicial cases being mishandled, as in the case of Robert Barnes filing ch case, uh, charges against Bishop Olivito, or when you think about, um, his name is escaping me, the gentleman that filed charges against Cedric Bridgeforth, which were summarily dismissed, or wouldn't you want to talk about Bishop Carcano and the car charges filed against her? Um, the 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 timeline for figuring out how those things are going to be decided has long passed. They have shown no interest in actually defending the Book of Discipline or exercising the mantle of authority given them. Uh, rather, uh, as I said at the beginning of this segment, I believe that, generally speaking, if it does not fulfill the interests of liberal white elites in North America, it's just not going to happen, except in Mississippi, apparently. So, um, Anyway, if you are of the mind that there's a role for you to play, I, I think the number one thing that can be done is to really uh, push the Carcano case towards resolution. Uh, I and many others are pretty sure that they're just going to drag it out till 2024 until they can compel her to retire and then just simply quietly dismiss the charges. Whatever was done will not be known. Uh, there's a huge institutional interest in uh, covering up whatever happened, and I still don't know why. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that as people continue to ask questions, apply pressure as the General Commission on Race and Religion or COSRO, Status and Role of Women, as they continue to put pressure on, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that they expose whatever's going on and whatever's going on around. You know, it, it's just a coincidence, I'm sure, that uh, Olivito and Bridgeforth, the two out openly gay bishops we have, have judicial misconduct around them. Um, that goes back uh, actually to 2016, and I'm learning about some of that history as well. Before Bridgeforth was even um, uh, a bishop, uh, Carcano filed charges against him, which the specifics of that are not known to me. So there's a lot more going on that, than is known. I just talked about some of the stuff that is known. There's history going back that I don't know. There's things probably going on under the behind the scenes right now that I don't know. The, the overall impression I, I get and I would share with you, I think is well-founded, is the whole thing stinks. The United Methodist Church has a public persona. It self-identifies as this respectable, genteel, professional organization that does things by the book, and you just have these upstart um, racist bigots in the South and Midwest that just are never going to be happy. And I, I think there's no way that that can be seen as true at this point. There are so many different chapters in this story that just stink, that, that just show that, that once people get in power in this denomination, for some reason, the vast majority of them just lose integrity. And in case you want another example of that, I just recently put out an interview with a representative from First Church Oklahoma City where he talks about the misbehavior of the conference staff here in Oklahoma and how unprofessional that they've been creating their own rules that they don't even obey. 
And this is normal. It's normal as, you know, I've been trying to do financial analysis of different annual conferences. And you wouldn't believe how opaque and secretive they've been about their finances across the connection, except in the Dakotas where Jeff Pospisil was. He exercised that transparency and the reward was flourishing. Now what you find across the connection is all kinds of secrecy around finances that stink to high heaven. You got conferences like Oklahoma that can't even pass a basic audit for two years uh, the whole thing is so ridiculous, it, it, and it's the infuriating part for me. It'd be one thing if if leaders could have humility and say and acknowledge the the shortcomings of the past. Uh, you don't see that. You don't see any humility. You see entrenchment. You see them digging their heels in. You see them insisting that they are right and people like me are wrong. And that's just why I had to get out. I realized I was not dealing with rational, good faith partners. I was dealing with ideologues who see me as an enemy on the wrong side of history, and any means are justified for the ends of uh, robbing me and people like me of the heritage we have in Methodism. So that's why I, I pretty gladly continue to do these segments. I think there are a lot of people within the UMC that still don't understand that they don't like you, that they hate you and what you stand for, that they have no compunction using your tithing dollars to oversee these kangaroo courts that come to clownish decisions and don't exercise justice. Um, I, I think, you know, for integrity's sake, I never want to cast aspersions at conservatives who want to stay in the United Methodist Church. But I certainly don't want other people to cast aspersions at conservatives leaving as though they are disloyal or um, faithless. This is, like I said at the start of this, a complicated picture. I came to a conclusion about what is generally true. I hope that my analysis here has been helpful to you. If it has been, circulate this, comment, share, put it on Facebook. Um, I'm hopeful that, that my voice is a helpful one, not just for empowering conservatives, but helping liberals to understand how and why we see things the way that we do and the concerns that they need to be able to address if they're going to continue to make the case that conservatives should not be leaving with their assets in tow. All right, I'm going to wrap up for today. Thanks for listening. God bless you. I'll see you next time.